Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, we always take a few moments to make sure that we are in fellowship with God. Scripture teaches that at the instant that any of us puts our faith in Christ, we are born again, we have new life, we are adopted into God's family, and many other things that transpire simultaneously and instantly at the moment of our salvation. However, as in any human family, when we disobey God, whenever we sin, uh, that breaches our fellowship with Him. It stifles the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, in producing spiritual growth. And so it's important for us to be restored to fellowship. Scripture says that's done simply by confessing, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to Him. By confessing our sins, and He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to uh, use 1 John 1, 9, admit any sins in the privacy of your own priesthood to God the Father, making sure you're in fellowship, ready to focus and study uh, God's Word. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have your word that describes to us who you are and what your plan for the human race is, what your plan for human history is, and what your plan for our lives is. Father, we're thankful that in your word we come to understand reality as it is, as you created it, and as we align our thinking to the reality defined and described in your word, then we are able to think as you think, and we are able to live as you would have us to live. And we recognize that this is a lengthy process, and that it is important for us to therefore submit ourselves to the teaching of your word and the study of your word on a regular daily basis, that God the Holy Spirit may use this to transform our thinking and transform our lives, that that which is produced by him is something that honors and glorifies you as it reflects the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that 
our eyes might be open to new things that you reveal to us in your word that we may come to understand you and understand your plan and purposes for us in a better way that we might glorify you in the midst of the adversities and trials that we face in life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. As we've seen in our study of Revelation from the very beginning in chapter 1, when John uh, the Apostle has been exiled to the Isle of Patmos, and there he has a vision where the resurrected, ascended Lord Jesus Christ appears to him uh, specifically dressed and in the uh, garb of a judge and a priest. Uh, from that point on, we see that uh, two of the major themes that are addressed in Revelation deal with the justice of God as well as the grace of God. For these two things always go together in Scripture. You never have the outworking of God's justice and his judgment on man or on mankind as a whole or on any individual apart from his grace. And whenever God is dealing with man in grace, that also involves his justice and his righteousness, these aspects of God's character and his essence and the way he relates to his creatures are sometimes thought by people to be somewhat contradictory. And there are times when people focus on one aspect to the exclusion of another or on the other to the exclusion of the first. And the result is a, a distorted view of God. And this always has consequences in the individual's life because when we go through difficult times, when we go through adversity, when we go through suffering, when we are the ones who are uh, uh, under the gun and we are the ones who are facing the hardships, the difficulties in life, then if we have an anemic view of God and we have not properly understood his essence, his character, how he deals with man and how he deals with things in human history, then it causes uh, believers at times to uh, waffle in their faith, uh, to have various doubts. It causes unbelievers to become skeptical and to use this as a, a fulcrum, which they think gives them leverage against uh, the truth of God's word. So as we go through our study, and as we've gone through our study of Revelation, there are times when we stop and think about these aspects, these important doctrines, because they are the focal point in the text. Now, in the last several weeks, we have been going through Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 is the beginning of what is called the tribulation period, and that takes place sometime in the future. We don't know exactly when that will begin, but we know from Scripture that the sign of its beginning is related to a, the rise of a future individual known in Scripture as the Antichrist, the Beast, uh, various other appellations are given to him, which we've studied in the past. And when he comes to power, he will enter into a covenant or a peace treaty with Israel, 
And this is uh, described in the ninth chapter of Daniel towards the end as Daniel describes this, or as the angel uh, Gabriel describes to Daniel God's future plan for the nation Israel. And so the last part of that chronology is what is usually referred to as Daniel's 70th week. It refers to a seven, uh, seven increment period that is indicated contextually. It's not a week, it's not seven days, it's seven years. And so that seven-year period is also referred to as the time of Jacob's wrath in Jeremiah, which indicates it's, that it essentially has a, a Jewish character to it and that this, this tribulation is indeed uh, yet future to us. And so sometimes when people study Revelation or they study prophecy, they say, well, that's all great, it's stimulating, it's interesting, it's uh, um, always fun to study these things and to get involved in certain speculations as to how current events may affect the shaping of the fulfillment of future prophecy. But essentially, what uh, does this have to do with me and where I am today? And we know from Scripture that all Scripture, and even though at the time that Paul uh, penned that to Timothy, he had primarily in mind the Old Testament. Uh, the New Testament was just in the process of being written when he wrote that. But the universal principle there is that it would apply to all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's breathed out by God and is profitable for instruction or doctrine. Uh, for doctrine, for uh, instruction, for correction, uh, for reproof and correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work, so that all Scripture has application to every believer in every dispensation. Now, we know that some passages of Scripture seem to be more uh, significant or relevant to us in our current life situation than other passages, but the reality is is that all aspects of Scripture, whether you're talking about the uh, what seem to be the endless genealogies at the beginning of First Chronicles or the genealogies in Genesis 5 or 7, they all fit as part of this overall picture, this overall framework that is to establish the way we as believers think about reality. So even though you may be studying a section of Scripture that you think, boy, I don't see how that has any significance or application to me at this particular time, it does in the sense that it shapes the way we, we think, the way we respond and react to things that take place in our life. And so that's why it's important to be consistent in our study of the Word and our daily application of the Word because God uses all of that in the process of bringing us uh, to spiritual maturity. So that's one reason it's important to study a prophecy, study the book of Revelation, because the, there are principles that are embedded in these future events that are part of the way God deals with mankind throughout history. And so there are times when it's important to step back a little bit and do what I try to do all the time when I'm teaching a section of Scripture and ask the question, what is the main, uh, main doctrine that is being taught in this particular passage or this particular section? What is it that is the focal point topic here 
and usually the writer gives us a pretty good indication of what that is. And so we're going to begin a minor sub-series. We're not going to get too far adrift, and we'll spend a lot of time in the text of chapter 7, but chapter 7 really addresses a question that every one of us has asked at one time or another in our own Christian life and Christian growth. Uh, before we get to that, though, just to get, leave you hanging and tantalize you a little bit, we're going to do a little review so that we understand the setup a little better. In Revelation chapter 6, we have the beginning of the first series of judgments that takes place during that future tribulation period. There are three series of judgments that are described as first the seal judgments, then the trumpet judgments, and then the bowl judgments. The seal judgments take place, I believe, during the first part of the first half of the tribulation. There's a certain amount of debate and discussion among those who hold to a pre-trib rapture or dispensational approach to Scripture as to just what this chronology is, because there are things about it that just aren't as clear as we would uh, like them to be, but I've covered that in other classes where we've seen that uh, it seems best to see these six seal judgments coming prior to the midpoint of the tribulation period, as intense as they are. And this is an intense series of, of judgments that are poured out on the entire earth, on all of mankind, even to the point that as we have seen in the uh, the expression of the third judgments in the fourth seal judgment that a quarter of the earth's population dies during this period, and that would include both believer and unbeliever. And we see the enormity of this suffering that would come during this time when there is a war that extends throughout uh, the the world and in, would involve almost every nation and every country and I know some of you are students of history and and some of you really like to study especially 20th century history and the history of the Second World War and if you take a look at the extent and the uh, global reach of the conflict of the Second World War that is just a uh, just uh, just very minimal compared to the extent of war at this time. And the loss of life, though it was enormous during the period of the Second World War, and we in the United States just have a small inkling of that. I believe that the United States lost around 390,000 uh, soldiers who died during World War II, and we're very grateful for that. But if you were a citizen of the Soviet Union at that time. Soviet Union lost 28 million people during the Second World War, and other nations in Europe lost enormous numbers of people. We don't quite fathom that because uh, as much as there was uh, suffering and families lost loved ones during uh, the Second World War, I had an uncle who was killed in the uh, breakout after uh, after Normandy, and so there's hardly a family in uh, the United States or a family here that didn't experience the loss of someone during that time. Just extrapolate that and, uh, and increase that probably a hundredfold, and you may come to some appreciation of the extent of suffering 
and misery that's going to take place during the tribulation period. And we're just talking about the first series of judgments in the sealed judgment. So we looked at these judgments, and we saw that they begin after the rapture of the church in the first part of the tribulation. There is the initial conquest that is probably bloodless that takes place with the first seal. This leads to uh, open war that is uh, throughout involves every nation on the earth just about. Uh, this is followed by famine and then the natural consequence of death. I pointed out that these operate usually within the natural flow of things. There's no indication in these of direct, uh, direct divine uh, or overt uh, divine uh, discipline, although they are expressions of God's judgment because he has uh, withdrawn his restraint of evil. The fifth seal judgment involves the martyrdom of vast numbers of believers, those who have come to salvation after the rapture of the church. This would not involve anyone who is a believer today. And then the sixth seal judgment is described as the wrath, not just of the Lamb, which is clearly stated when we look at Verse 16, they, that is the earth dwellers, said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, that's the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb. So if you stop there, you think that this is just an expression of the wrath of the Lamb, the justice coming from the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the next sentence, they say, for the great day of their wrath has come. That is the wrath of both the Father and the Son. I just make that point last time. I talked a little bit about the this view called the pre-wrath rapture of the church, which puts the rapture sometime in about the last quarter of the tribulation, trying to restrict the term wrath to just that last period. That just doesn't uh, work out uh, t- textually or contextually. Uh, it is their wrath that is expressed from the very beginning, and this summarizes the, the, all of these judgments, for it is the Lamb who is opening each of these seals. And so it is the Lamb that is initiating these particular judgments. But as we go through these, we see how horrendous they are. And last time we looked at the sixth judgment, and that it involves uh, massive a tectonic shifts, earthquakes, volcanoes. It is as if the uh, physical earth itself is now bringing war against man. There are uh, untold uh, millions who die during this particular period, and it becomes very clear by now to those who have resisted God that this is caused by God, that he is the one who is initiating this judgment, but in their rejection of God, in the hardening of their heart, in their negative volition, they continue to defy God, and they seek to hide in the caves and the caverns. I tell you, if there were earthquakes, that's not where I would hide. But this is where they hide, uh, and they call upon them to fall on, call upon the rocks to fall on them to hide them, protect them from the wrath, from the wrath of God. And as we come to the last verse here that we see in verse uh, 17. They say, For the great day of their wrath has come, and then they ask a question. And this question really sets up the content, 
provides a transition into the next chapter. And as you think about this question, there is a very important question that actually underlies this question, a question that we all have asked at one time or another. They say, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So the question is, in light of these massive judgments and this unprecedented horror and disaster and destruction and death that is taking place, who can live? Who can survive? And that question is going to be answered by uh, God in the next thing that the next vision that John sees and that's described in chapter 7. He says actually after this, not after these things, but uh, the text says after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. And the first uh, three verses talk about these angels who are involved with judgment. We'll get into the details of that uh, later. And there is a uh, command by another angel in verse 3 saying, Don't harm the earth. That is addressing these angels and bringing judgment. Don't harm the earth until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. So the first part of this chapter addresses one group of people who are able to stand and survive these judgments of God, and those are the 144,000 mentioned in verses 4 through 8. And then there is a second group that is described in verses 9 uh, through 17, and this pictures a multitude of of those who have been martyred and are in heaven before the throne of God and before the presence of the Lamb. And they have been uh, killed during the tribulation period, and they are uh, in heaven giving uh, praise to God. So these are two groups that are able to stand in the midst of this horrific judgment. Well, who are these people that have been able to stand and who are uh, living in the midst of that judgment? They are believers, the 144,000. We'll get into who they are and their role and mission and task eventually, but they survive these judgments. And then you also have these martyrs, and they uh, do, not, do not survive the judgment, but they participate they are as much a recipient of these judgments as unbelievers. So the question that this raises focuses on the whole topic of the grace of God and the goodness of God. For as we understand the extremity of these disasters and this adversity that goes far beyond anything that you or I have ever experienced in our lives, the question would be, how can a good and loving God allow his creatures, especially creatures who have trusted in Christ as their Savior and part of his family and are believers in Jesus Christ, how can God let them go through this kind of horrendous suffering and how can they, he allow them to go through all of this horror? That just doesn't seem to fit with the idea of a loving, benevolent, caring God. And this is the way it's often expressed by those who wish to uh, challenge the idea that there is a uh, caring, 
God according to the standards of Christianity. And so several questions are raised as we think about this. Is God really good? Is God really just? Is God really fair? Well, what do these words mean and how should we use them? We also ask questions, need to answer questions related to the issue of suffering. Why do good people suffering? Some years ago, a a Jewish rabbi who's very skeptical about the biblical view of God wrote a book about why bad things happen to good people. And this is a question that many people ask, and it's basically summarized in the question, how can a loving God bring suffering or adversity on his creatures. Sometimes in philosophical classrooms, philosophy classrooms, it's expressed in terms of how can a loving God allow the existence of evil. And we all wrestle with this at times when this becomes very real in our own lives and we are going through what we uh, deem to be undeserved or unjust suffering. And I can't think of anything that might cause somebody to think they're more in the category of unjust or undeserved suffering than somebody who is a uh, post-rapture believer and is going through these seal judgments and wondering how in the world could God let all of this happen to me. And so this is an important question And if you are the one going through the suffering, if you're the one going through adversity, then uh, sometimes it seems like the more you do to obey God, the more you study God's Word, the more you seem to get serious about your own uh, spiritual life, uh, rather than seeing the suffering uh, disappear or decrease, it just seems to get more and more difficult. And so there are times when we wonder, What in the world is God doing, and does God uh, really care? Uh, I would suggest that for most of us in America, the suffering and adversity that we encounter often plays itself out uh, in terms of personal crises. It may be the loss of a loved one. It may involve uh, problems in romance, marital breakup, uh, problems with the death of loved ones, such as parents or children or spouses. Uh, It could involve the loss of economic stability. You lose a job. You go through a period of of, uh, unemployment. You just have various things that happen that wipe out your savings, wipe out uh, any uh, economic security that you thought you had, and now you don't know how you're going to pay the bills on Monday. So there's the loss of economic stability and then just the loss of health. Uh, This can also involve the loss of economic stability with the uh, increase of costs of health care. And as we age and we succumb to various diseases, uh, and there also may be things that occur such as automobile accidents or other things that perhaps happen on the job, And we go through things that just go on and on and on in life, and we wonder, you know, what God is doing, if God's in control, if God's really good, because this doesn't feel very good. And so we go through these things. But as Americans, we really are somewhat 
uh, limited in the extremities of our adversity. Now, it may not seem that way when you're going through it, and I don't mean to minimize uh, anyone's uh, uh, personal adversity in this, but when you look at things historically, you think about the suffering that so many believers went through as God brought the Assyrians into Israel during the uh, 8th century B.C. and brought the Babylonians in during the 7th and 6th century B.C. and the Romans during the time of the uh, Jewish wars of rebellion and all the things that happened during those times of war. You think about the uh, untold millions who have lived as, uh, as either real slaves or economic slaves, whether they were slaves, virtual slaves in ancient Egypt, or whether they were the economic uh, slaves in the Marxist-Leninist empires of the 20th century in China, Russia. Uh, all of these untold millions suffer uh, incredibly in ways that that very few Americans have ever uh, ever experienced. And then we can also think of the unimaginable horrors that took place that were imposed upon mostly the Jews, but also other groups. Uh, many uh, Bible-believing Christians were sent to the death camps in Nazi Germany, as well as academicians and gypsies, Jehovah's Witnesses, and numerous other groups. Right now I'm reading a book called The Holocaust, by uh, Martin Gilbert that's about 800 detailed pages of what happens, uh, what happened during the Holocaust. He just about details every, uh, how many Jews were killed or were deported or were tortured in every village in Poland or in Germany or in Czechoslovakia uh, during the time of the uh, preceding and during the time of the Second World War. And it's just unimaginable what the the inhumanity of man to man during this particular time. And you read about what those people encountered in the suffering in their own life, and you just you wonder, gosh, do I should I ever even think that I have a problem? Because the problems I have had, no matter how enormous they felt at the time, when compared to what these people went through, it's just nothing. So we, we don't, as Americans, we don't experience the kind of adversity and suffering that so many have in history. Nevertheless, when it's you that can't pay the bills, it's you that's getting kicked out of the house, or you're the one who's going through uh, chemotherapy, uh, and there's really very little hope that that will have benefit, uh, these are times that often test us in terms of our understanding of God and our trust in him that his plan is good. And so this relates to the doctrine of the goodness of God. And in Matthew 19:17, Jesus made the statement in answer to a question. He said to him, this is Jesus answering a question. He said, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And he uses the Greek word agathos, which has to do with absolute good, what the uh, uh, Latin church and the theologians in the Middle Ages referred to as the summum bonum, for those of you who uh, take philosophy classes. Uh, Jesus is affirming the absolute goodness of God. And we see this, this is really the focus, the underlying doctrine 
behind the question at the end of chapter 6 into chapter 7. The question is, who can stand? And behind that is really the question of who can survive this judgment of God and how can a just and loving, caring God allow all these kinds of things to happen to his creatures? And in the answer that we have in chapter 7, we see a magnificent portrayal and description of the mercy and the grace and the care of God towards those who are his, even in the midst of judgment. So what I want to do as we get into this chapter is to use it to address this underlying doctrine, this underlying question, because it's one that uh, touches each one of us at some point or another, either in terms of our own uh, personal experience or may even be in the context of, of witnessing to someone else, explaining the gospel to them where they raise this as a question. And sometimes that gets people sort of turned around when suddenly they're confronted with this question, well, how can you believe God is so good uh, when you look at what happened during the Holocaust? That is particularly a question you will uh, you may face if you're involved in witnessing to someone who is Jewish. This is a stumbling block in their thinking. How can God be good and have allowed six million of his chosen people to have gone uh, into the gas chambers and up in the smoke of the crematorium? So I want to address this in this manner. First of all, this morning, I'm going to keep it short because of the congregational meeting, I just want to give a somewhat brief overview of the issue at hand, sort of a roadmap of, of doctrinal uh, thinking so that as we approach the details of the text, we can see how it fits within this overall framework. Second, beginning next time, we will look at the details of the text in terms of its basic meaning within the context of the whole uh, apocalypse, the revelation given to John. And in the course of this, we're going to have to investigate a number of important details in the chapter that are often misinterpreted and misapplied. Uh, we need to address the questions of who are the four angels in verse 1, what are they doing, uh, what does it mean that they are at the four corners of the earth, is this some sort of primitive indication that writers of Scripture had a flat earth view or something like that, uh, questions such as uh, what about this seal of God mentioned in verse 2. There are those who are going to be sealed. What is the nature of that seal and what are they protected from? Are they protected simply from the judgments or does this guarantee that they will live and survive through the tribulation period? Uh, what is the role of these 144,000 that are sealed and how should we understand that Number. There are those who have said that the 144,000 are the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, Mormons teach that the 144,000 are the Mormons. Uh, others teach different things. Uh, if you take the text somewhat literally, you might say, well, uh, 10 of these 12 tribes mentioned here uh, were basically lost during the time of the uh, when the northern kingdom was wiped out by the Assyrians, and so we have the so-called ten lost tribes of Israel, well, how can God uh, find them? Weren't they just lost? So we have to address that whole topic. 
what's the relation then between the multitude in heaven that's mentioned in verse 9 and following and these 144,000? And then as we get into that second part, we're in the heavenly scene. Who's the one who's sitting on the throne? What's the role of the lamb? Why are these that are martyred dressed in white robes? What do those white robes signify? And what is the significance then of all these scenes? And then finally, how does that answer our question, which is how can a good, loving God allow his creatures and even those who have believed in him to go through unbelievable amounts of suffering? So this is the question. How can a loving God allow his creatures, and especially those who are his through salvation, how can he allow them to undergo unprecedented suffering, adversity, misery, and sorrow? First of all, we have to recognize that there are four things that are involved in this question. It's not a simple question. And I want to bring that up. Recently, somebody asked me, said, why is it that when you go to doctrinal churches or teaching churches, it often takes these doctrinal pastors uh, 200, 300 hours to get through a book of the Bible, whereas if you go to some other churches that, uh, if you can find one that actually goes verse by verse from the first chapter to the last chapter of a book, why does, why do they do it in, you know, 10, 15, or maybe 20 hours? Why does it take so long? It's because, uh, if you're teaching the Word, you're not just teaching what the Bible says, but you're ha- trying to help people understand how it changes the way you think. And that takes time to do that. Also because what may appear to be simple questions do not necessarily have simple answers. And so it's important to work through these things and to look at all of the all of the details. And so it's part of a an understanding of the entire a pedagogical and learning process, that the role of the church isn't to be a social institution. It's not a place where people can come together on Sunday morning and sing some songs and and hear a light devotional that gives them some pithy little uh, point of application to take home, but it is designed to dig down deep into the way we think and approach life and to change it from a non-biblical uh, way of thinking and acting and reacting to a biblical way. And that just takes takes time. And the really significant issues in life, which is, after all, what we should be concerned about, are not necessarily issues that have simple, quick, pithy little uh, answers that you can just put up on a, on a you know, five-minute soundbite. So four things that come into view here are, first of all, the nature of God, Second, the nature of suffering. Third, the nature of evil. And fourth, the plan of God. To answer the question, you have to have a pretty good understanding of those, uh, those four things. People who have a somewhat limited or anemic view of the nature of God are going to come away with thinking that somehow God just must be out of control or he can't control things or, or he's just wringing his hands up there in heaven looking down on the earth uh, thinking that, oh, what am I going to do about all of this suffering? That was the answer uh, that the rabbi gave to the question why uh, bad things happen to good people. God's just not in control. 
And that's one way in which people have tried to answer this. But see, that shows that he has a rather uh, weak view of God. When you have a weak view of God, you also tend to have a weak view of evil, a weak view of evil and of sin. And when we have a biblical view of sin and evil, we realize that it's more than just telling a white lie or committing some social faux pas or thinking in terms of whatever the socially defined sins are of the day, such as uh, racism or sexism or some of the other things that are politically incorrect in our culture, that sin has to do with something that is at its very root, a rejection of the authority and person of God. And because of the nature of reality, the way God is and the way his creation is, that when that authority relationship is breached, it has uh, consequences that reverberate through all of his creation in ways that we can't even imagine so that things that we consider to be trite sins or little white lies or somewhat inconsequential have consequences far beyond anything we can imagine. For example, if I were to ask most of you what your five, what you think the five worst sins are, I doubt that any of you would list eating a piece of fruit on that list of sins. But it was when Adam ate that forbidden fruit in the garden that we have all the consequences that we see today, wars and famines and natural cataclysms and disasters. All of these things are the result of that simple act of of eating that piece of fruit. So uh, we have to understand that evil is something that is real and profound and that permeates every aspect of creation ever since its introduction. And the result of that is that it brings suffering into the experience of all of God's creatures because once sin entered into uh, the creation, then it destroys the creation and its result is that we all live in a fallen uh, cosmos and we feel the consequences of that. Nothing is as it should be. And then we have to understand what God is doing in terms of his plan, that he is omniscient, and so therefore he has a plan and a purpose, and he is working out that plan and that purpose. Now, just as a side note, uh, any discussion that you might have of this whole problem of evil with someone uh, who is a skeptic, perhaps, always is going to involve the notion of an absolute. Usually, if you're dealing with someone who's a skeptic, they've rejected the idea of absolutes, but the question they're really asking is, or the statement they're really making is, you know, if there's real evil and suffering in the world and it's undeserved, then God just isn't good. Well, where did they get this concept of an absolute good that they're using to judge God? I mean, if they've rejected God, then there's no basis for their concept or their understanding of good. So they're always going to be importing some sort of absolute standard into the discussion, uh, which they have no right to. And uh, I, what I like to do when that question is raised by people is to say, well, well, before I answer from a biblical viewpoint, how do you solve the problem 
of sin and evil and undeserved suffering if you don't have a God who is ultimately in control and ultimately going to make everything right. And the only thing they can go to is it's, we, it's just natural and normal. And once evil becomes natural and normal, then I like to talk about the fact that, well, that would mean that the Holocaust would have to be natural and normal, so you really can't do anything about uh, Hitler or uh, any of the other injustices that take place. Because you don't have a if injustice is normal, then you can't even use the word injustice. So they're just trapped within a logical uh, fallacy. But as we look at this, we have to look at the nature of God and who God is, and this brings to bear the essence of God that God is sovereign, which means he is in control of his creation. He's the ruler. He is absolute righteousness and perfect justice. This is at the core of of our whole understanding. And what we have to realize is that God is perfect righteousness. That's what we mean by his goodness. Righteousness is the uh, core of his character. And that as a righteous God, everything that he does conforms to absolute perfection And justice is the application of that perfect standard to his creatures. And the concept of holiness is usually talked about in terms of these two attributes. And holiness means that God is unique. He is one of a kind. He is uh, totally uh, set apart. This is stated very clearly in uh, Exodus 15:11. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome in glory, working wonders. God is unique. He is also a God of love. And so uh, these three attributes are not in juxtaposition to one another, but they all work together in perfect harmony. But you have to understand what these terms mean. In Genesis 18.25, Abraham is talking to God just before God goes to judge The angel of the Lord there goes to judge and destroy the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah, for their uh, sexual perversion. And in Genesis 18.25, Abraham makes a statement uh, regarding this destruction in terms of killing everyone without regard for the righteous, because Abraham's concerned about his nephew Lot, who's living in Sodom at the time. And Abraham says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. And then he asks the key question, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And see, that's the point. Is God, because he is not only righteous and just in love, but because he is also omniscient, he knows all the facts. And because he knows all the facts and all the details, he can always make the right and just decision in the outworking of history. And so we can always trust him. In Jeremiah 9.24, we read, I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight. See, God is not somehow distant and uninvolved and uncaring about human suffering or the things that are going on within human history. But in his justice, he has also provided the perfect solution to the problem. And only when you understand the extent of this problem of sin and evil can we appreciate what that solution is, which began at the cross 
with Jesus Christ, for it is on the cross that the sin penalty was paid, and that sin penalty had to be paid so that the justice and righteousness of God could be satisfied. And once his justice is satisfied, then his love and his mercy were free to flow to mankind on the conditions that he set within his plan, which is on the basis of uh, faith alone in Christ alone, trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. But God allows human history to run its course because he is demonstrating certain things within human history, as it were uh, something like a, um, a laboratory experiment in order to demonstrate that any actions, no matter how innocuous they may seem, from the little white lie to the most extreme egregious sin that you can imagine, any action that is taken that is independent of God is going to have consequences that are horrendous and that reverberate throughout uh, history. So he's teaching something and demonstrating something through history, and in his omniscience and in his omnipotence, he's able to bring that together to a conclusion so that, as I've said before, when we get to this end-time period in history, what God is doing is resolving these issues in judgment, the issues of sin and evil, so that he can then bring redemption to man, redemption to uh, the world, to the earth, which is what's described in Romans chapter 8, and that he can resolve uh, this whole problem of sin and evil. And in the course of that, there are those who are dear to him who will go through suffering and adversity, but this is not without purpose and not without reason. And that at the end, and this is the picture we see in the heavenly scene of Revelation 7, God wipes away every tear and we see that uh, that care and concern that God has in bringing that to resolution when we are face-to-face with him, and there will be a time when we no longer remember any of the things that have occurred in this life, and God will wipe away those particular memories. But the starting point for the realization of God's love and grace is the cross and putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Well, we'll come back next time, and we'll begin to look at the details of Revelation 7 and how this fits into uh, understanding the whole problem of evil and sin and suffering. And we'll do that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, study these things, to reflect upon the fact that you are a God of goodness, righteousness, and justice, and that everything you do in history is good, right, and just, and that we must conform our understanding of goodness, righteousness, and justice to what you have described uh, in your word, and that by doing so, we can therefore conform our thinking to reality. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Uh, this is your opportunity to recognize that you were born in sin. Scripture says we were born spiritually dead, separated from God, but that God provided a perfect solution for you that you may have eternal life, and that begins by trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. 
Because Jesus died on the cross with you in mind. He paid the penalty for your sins. You can have eternal life. All it takes is just that trust factor. And the instant you believe Jesus died for you, God the Father imputes to you Christ's perfect righteousness, declares you just, gives you eternal life, you're born again, and many other things transpire in an instant as you are transferred from the kingdom of this world into the uh, under the authority of God and into his royal family. Father, we pray that you would challenge all of us with the things that we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.